Welcome to Consumed, the podcast that features casual conversations with the people behind what we eat and drink. I'm Jamie Lewis, and I just discovered that Consumed hit the top 40 of food and wine podcasts in the U.S. this past year. Top 40. Mind blown. I think you're going to like this ninth season of the Consumed podcast. I interviewed a couple chefs, a brewer, knife designers, a cheese purveyor, produce manager, fitness instructor, farmer advocate, religion professor, singer-songwriter, wine historian, and a pizza don. From Paso Robles to Ventura, they told me the story behind the story of what they do and why. Before we get into it, let me give a quick shout out to a couple of key sponsors who make this podcast tick. One is Santa Maria wine grower James Onaveros with Ranchos de Onaveros Wines. In April, James's label, Native Nine, was named among Wine and Spirits magazine's best Pinot Noir of the year in the country. I mean, I'm not surprised, but still, that's a really big deal. To taste those Pinots, head to the station in Los Alamos, where you'll find the most recent wines from Rancho de Anaveros, as well as tasty grub from Cisco Kid Catering, like classic Santa Maria-style tri-tip, barbecue plates, burgers, pork belly tacos, plus beer, kombucha, even avocado toast. Hang out in Los Alamos, enjoy James's wines, and soak up the best of a Central Coast summer. Many thanks to Rancho de Anaveros and James for his support of this podcast and his commitment to the growth of the local wine industry. For more information about Rancho de Anaveros wines, visit ranchostayanaveros.com. I'm also grateful for support from Slow Life Magazine, which focuses exclusively on the perks of living in San Luis Obispo, California. Keep an eye out for my next food column in the magazine. I did something a little different this time, and I asked a few kids about their favorite dishes and restaurants in town. I was rather shocked by their answers, and I can't wait for you to read all about it. Look for the June issue on newsstands at Boo Boo Records and Barnes and Noble, or subscribe at slowlifemagazine.com. Libby Agron is the author of San Luis Obispo County Wine, a world-class history, and the founder of the Wine History Project of San Luis Obispo County. Along with her board members and staff, Libby researches the long and varied history of San Luis Obispo County grape growers, winemakers, wine families, and the supporters who make the wine industry a top producer in the U.S., Libby has an unbelievable wealth of knowledge on the subject, having devoted much of the last five years to writing the book, which was released March 1st of this year. The Wine History Project also makes films, installs exhibitions on wine history, and has a robust website worth visiting at winehistoryproject.org. Pick up the book on that site or on Amazon. Okay, here's my talk with Libby Agrin. I'm sitting here with Libby Agrin. We're talking about your most recent project or your really big project recently with the Wine History Project, a wonderful book I read called San Luis Obispo County Wine, A World-Class History. Thank you for coming. Thank you for having me. I've been looking forward to this. Same, same. Well, this book, thank you so much for passing this along. Um, You published it this year, 2021. Yes, it was released on March 1st. Yeah. Oh, it was just March 1st. Oh, my gosh. The days are going by so fast right now. We have a lovely plane overhead. Oh, it's a helicopter. We're outside in my backyard, by the way, of course. Well, the book is fascinating because it really does go all the way back 
it goes all the way back to the indigenous people here and their relationship to the land. How talk a little bit about that process of of you know digging all of this up. Well, in a way, I felt like a hist- historical archaeologist in our county. This project evolved, it started actually in 2016, when I was walking through the county hiking with a friend named Don Campbell, who is an agricultural historian, and I wanted to learn about the land, because that's the thing I love about our county. And I, we would walk the land, and I would say, well, what was growing here 10 years ago, or 100 years ago, or 200 years ago? Who, who was here? Who owned this property? What were they thinking about? And all of those questions um, really began to awaken in me a need to document document our county in a way that it had not been, Mm. because nobody had ever written a book about the entire history of this fascinating place. Mm -hmm. And it was a man named John Alban, who's a very important winemaker in our county, in our county history, who once said to me, there are certain places in the world where wine will be made for thousands of years. And his feeling and my feeling um, is that this is one of those places that Mm -hmm. no matter if the climate shifts or the people shift, that this place is designated to grow grapes that are fine, great quality, which they have been doing since 1800. And it's an amazing history to think that most of our grapes were sent out of the county really until the California wine revolution in the 1970s. So there was a great shift and I wanted to document all of that. Yeah. Yeah. What made you interested in wine in particular? You know, it had to do with what crops are grown here. I mean, I could have written about strawberries or I could have written about cattle, but it just seemed to me that the the legends, the people involved, there was such a wide diversity from every ethnic group you can imagine emigrating here, particularly after the gold rush, and I wanted to capture their stories. Because in our county, here's one of the most amazing things, Jamie. We have had one of the most stable uh, grape production and later wine productions of any county in California Mm. because we've had families of multi-generations passing the craft down, Mm -hmm. passing the land down, uh, getting the youngest generation to be passionate about what they're doing, grapes, whether they're growing them or whether they're making wine. And that's really unusual. You know, most family businesses only last two generations at the most. And to think that we're on the fifth generation in some of our families, it's really exciting. Who are you thinking of when you think of those fifth generation families? At Ducey's, for sure. Yes, uh, the Ducey's are a really good example because their um, original family members came with the Italian migration from Italy Mm -hmm. into the United States in the early 1900s. Now, what's interesting about our county is it wasn't people from southern Italy, which had come much earlier Mm -hmm. to northern California. Mm -hmm. These people were from northern Italy, which was a dairy farming and um, more of a forested area. Mm-hmm. So when they came, they weren't coming with grape skills or planning to even grow grapes. They were planning, you know, to go into the dairy industry or they were clearing the lumber and they made a huge impact in the charcoal industry, which was very oh. important to our county. Yeah. Yeah. Starting in the early uh, 1920s. And so, you know, one generation would come over and then another brother or sister or or wife who had been left behind in the old country would mm-hmm. join them. And As they were clearing York Mountain particularly, Mm because that was where it started, uh, they began to think, oh, well, I could also work in the vineyards and help out the York family or the Anderson family who had already settled there. 
And if we clear the land, well, how about making charcoal? There's a need for that. You know, we have railroads, we have individuals, we have businesses that need it to run their boilers. And so um, one particular person, Lorenzo Norelli, really uh, was one of the pioneers who started that uh, tradition and who bought the first vineyard on York Mountain next to others uh, that were already uh, had wineries. And um, he is the family, his family joined the Pazenti family. Mm -hmm. They married into that family and created a very important um, three, four generations of Pazentis and Norellis, you know, making wine, selling Zinfandel grapes, uh, making a, a lot of reputation for our county. Like so many different immigrant stories. Reading this book, you really see how all those immigrant stories start to interweave to the point where I'm like having a hard time telling certain families apart from one another because they all start to mingle, um, which is wonderful. And, uh, and also in our area, Swiss Italians, I mean, they're these are the names that we know, Filipponi and Rossi and Madonna and um, Fiscalini. And these are the names on our streets. These are the names um, of our open spaces. I'm thinking of Fiscalini Ranch. Um, There is such a huge impact that those folks made when they immigrated. Um, I don't know why it's such a pocket here. It, unless I'm wrong, maybe maybe there's a Swiss Italian influence across the whole coast of California, but it feels really strong here. It's very strong here. I, that's another part of the fascination for me of the county is the different ethnicities that you can trace back to not only their professions, but also to the land in which they continue to own or pass down. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Swiss Italians actually never, for the most part, with the exception of Mrs. Rata, who was very important, yeah. uh, most of them actually continued focusing on their dairy businesses, but they were huge customers of the Zinfandel grape growers. So the Ducies, the Yorks, um, they... they drove to the uh, coast and they brought the grapes to them. And even during Prohibition, when you could only make wine at home, you couldn't transport it. So uh, the uh, York family and the Pazenti family uh, they w- and the Ducey family would drive to the, these dairies and they would bring the grapes and they would bring a press and they'd press them so that they could make their own wine. So they were the great customers, as was the Basque population, mm-hmm. the sheep herders, which are more to the east end of the county. Um, and up into the Salinas area. So that's really interesting to me. And it's the northern Italians who learned from a Frenchman named uh, Adolphe Siot, who mm. started in 1891 with the first winery and the first Zinfandel vineyard in Templeton. That one man um, was producing all the Zinfandel wine early on in the 1890s. And then as the Italians, the northern Italians came in the early 1900s, he started selling them some of his land and coaching them and showing them how to plant grapes. And then ultimately in the the, uh, Rata family, he trained Clement Rata to be the winemaker and Mm -hmm. encouraged him to build a winery. And this was going on in 1924, 1925, right during Prohibition. Yeah. And leading right up to, I'm thinking of the Dust Bowl and the Depression, and mm-hmm. this this has gone on a long time. In, in relative to, let's say, in American history terms, this has been going on a long time. Um, yes. And yeah. actually, our county didn't suffer in the same way that most places did during the Depression, because the Italians thought, ah, Prohibition, a new market. Mm. We're going to start 
growing more grapes, planting more vineyards. In fact, we're going to make wine and it's okay if we sell it. There's this kind of bootlegging business. We can be part of this. And they have this optimism. And they, so we're one of the only counties where the vineyards expanded. The craft of making wine was passed down from person to person. Unlike Napa, Sonoma, yes. where everybody walked away from the vineyards, mm-hmm. the winemakers went out and found some other job. And there was really almost 25 years of the craft of making wine was lost. Mm. They had to start over again right. after right. Prohibition. But not us. We were sailing along. And on uh, the first day of 1934, people had their applications in to have a new wineries bonded. There mm-hmm. were five new wineries bonded with just in a month or two. And they started producing wine in huge quantities, and it started being shipped to Northern California to those wineries who had no grapes and no wine, but they needed something to put in a bottle with their label on it. And we were and, still going. You're and, still and, chugging. And we were producing all that for them. So we had we were quite an affluent county even during the really tough times mm. because of the farming ingenuity and um, I think multifamilies working with one another mm-hmm. just... With their eye on the prize, they just weren't going to let anything get them down. Yeah, yeah. I think your emphasis on families is also really important. Um, It always amazes me. In Monterey County, there are many, many, many more acres of vines than we have in ours. However, there are far, far fewer owners because so many of them are big corporate, um, you know, constellation and... uh, Shied and all well, actually, they're family owned, but for the most part, corporate mm-hmm. uh, grape growers, and so they have you know massive parcels all over Monterey. Whereas here, it really is. I'm thinking of like Kinsey and Ducey and um, small family owned um, wineries, which is very agricultural, like you know, very. Um, environmentally minded, I think also, because you're not using all of the, perhaps every single mechanized function that you can use out in the, in the vineyards. And it's kind of more hands on. Am I right about that? You are. And I particularly think of Castoro Cellars and Niels Utzon and his wife, Bimmer, and their winemaker, Tom Myers, who were one of the first to take a really large vineyards out in the, um, the east side of Paso Robles is really in San Miguel. And make that organic. I mean, and when I say that, to make a vineyard organic is a very long and difficult uh, time period and expensive. So it's like a 12 to 15 year period. And they've done it so successfully. We see other families, um, too. I'm thinking of the Edna Valley, which is very important. Its wine history starts closer to 1972, when two important families decided Uh, for very different reasons, one coming from a restaurant background and one coming from a gourmet kind of market background, where they both were interested in wine and they both wanted to leave this long-term careers they had. And they both independently uh, decided to try grapes because they could see that their customers in the restaurants and the markets were more interested in grapes. Mm -hmm. And they, with lots of research, both ended up in the Edna Valley, 
purchasing land. One purchased about 57 acres and the other one 650 acres. So there was the difference in scale here. But they both um, had the idea of growing grapes. Um, and they weren't thinking about becoming winemakers because that wasn't their talent. But they both were co- confident that they knew something about produce and, and agriculture. Growing, yeah. So um, those people, too, who passed uh, their... They were also families where people uh, in this next generation and the following generation took over. So one of those families um, is Norman Goss, Mm -hmm. which is now Chamisol. Uh, He he named his vineyard Chamisol, and it's gone through several uh, groups of ownership, his children first and then on to others. Um, And then the Niven family, which had a market chain called Purity Markets, who bought uh, 650 acres and who hired um, Jim Eford, who was a very important uh, person in in the terms of vineyard management and ultimately a partner at Tolosa Winery. Um, They planted Chardonnay. And they and Pinot Noir, and the, that's what thrived. It was an mm-hmm. entirely different microclimate. So, you again, the Niven family had, has recently sold, but there that went through three generations of management, right. and and ultimately through Catherine Niven uh, developing the first wine brand right. in the at uh, the valley. Um, you you have that continuity again, mm-hmm. but you have a different variety, and you have a different level of science, and you have the new science of drip irrigation. Um, all historically important in the Edna Valley. So that's a different story from the North County, um, but it's a fascinating story as well. Yes, for sure. Um, have you considered taking on the Santa Maria Valley? No, I'm I'm doing a second book, but it's on um, focusing more on the varieties and the winemakers. Mm. Because we have so many microclimates in this county, I want people to understand where these grapes are grown and who buys them and what they do with them. There's some wonderful stories. You know, my, my book is about storytelling. Yeah, because I for sure is. That's what we all love. And certainly in the pandemic, we've heard a lot more stories. But this will be a different kind of book in, in terms of the stories that are told. And um, I want to include a lot more of the women mm-hmm. who have owned their own vineyards and who have made wine in our county who have really emerged more recently. So this book is also going to be much more from 1972 to the present. Okay, so you're going to dive deeper rather than expanding out to other other areas. Yes, I want to celebrate our county because it just hasn't been celebrated enough. It's mm-hmm. usually done in magazine articles, which are very helpful, but there's the <laughs> continuity is lost. Yeah. And I want people to really understand. And we've actually opened up a wine history gallery in the Paso Robles area mm-hmm. now in the Paso Robles History Museum. Mm-hmm. And we're getting between 100 and 200 people a day on the weekends. And really? They, I am amazed. Jamie, I've, I've never That's seen so that um, before. I've done exhibitions for the last four years all through this county. And usually at winery tasting rooms or out in the vineyard, you know, they're outside where the public will interface with yeah. them. But this is really exciting. I, I, I've always said the Wine History Project is a museum without walls. We mm-hmm. take the exhibit and the history to the people. Mm-hmm. And the people are just coming and loving it. And our, our first focus is on Zinfandel and all the Zinfandel growers, North and South County, and the beautiful bottles that were etched by Candace Norcross. Mm-hmm. And we're doing, we have an exhibit there on all different sized bottles and the great stories and mythology behind the names. But what I love about it is whether people think they are interested in wine or not, the art which will we'll always have exhibits on art there, is pulling them in. The children are fascinated with the size of the bottles. <laughs> we have actually students from Cal Poly looking at all the 
the beautiful grape varieties. We have about 48 grape varieties highlighted with pictures and the history of each of them. And, you know, it's just it's information everybody should have at their fingertips. Mm-hmm. I believe in history very much. It's interesting that you say um, there are magazine articles and those are great. I mean, guilty. I've done many, many <laughs> glossy photo shoots about our culinary and enological history, not history, but what we have going on here. But it is too easy to glamorize that um, and not show the actual people involved. And that's the basis of this podcast is to show real people, to hear real stories, not just the, you know, beautiful Instagrammed kind of, um, you know, wine country fantasy, but really what people have risked to be here and you in this book I mean that's all you're talking about is the risks people took talk to me about the process of writing the book um, I don't believe you have a winemaking background do you no I don't I I actually came out of the financial world as a portfolio manager but I've always loved history yeah and particularly California history because my family immigrated to the United States so uh I think when you come to a new country and you're living, we lived in Southern California uh, in the more of the citrus belt, mm-hmm. but I, I love the history and I loved as a child to get on my bike and just go th- for miles, you know, looking at all the agriculture in Southern California at the time. So that's, wh- that's the thing I knew I always wanted to do. Mm. So when you went to these different historical figures in the winemaking community, was it easy to get in touch with them? Was it easy to reach them? And were they pretty forthcoming with information? You know, it, is, it was very hard in the beginning because I knew that I wanted to do wine. So what I decided to do, being a researcher, is I brought together a group of people that I met with every week, not all of them every week, um, but they included Bob Haas, um, Gary Eberly, uh Nancy Greenow, uh, oh, Archie are, McLaren, yeah. and Richard Surrett was another one, where we all, we would meet and we made a list of the 200 most important people and events and grapes, in some cases, uh, that changed history. Because I only want to write about the history that permanently shaped our yeah. county. So there are loads of wonderful people here that may come and go, but they probably won't be remembered as the mover or the shaker mm-hmm. or the shaper. Yeah. So... Um, once I had that list, then it was much easier for me to go to people and explain who I was working with and that this is a project. This project is not my project. This is the project that everyone is a part of in our county, no matter who you are. So we started with oral interviews. At first, I thought I would do oral interviews and catalog all of those. But what I have done is really create a website that I put that information in the website in terms of legends. We also began to build collections of tools that have been used in the county from the 1870s on. So we have a very remarkable collection of tools, labels, beautiful wine bottles. We established a library that's got many hundreds of books, you know, that people can make and uh, use as a research library. It's the most comprehensive public one anyway in the county. And people have donated a great number of things to us. Um, We get things almost every week. um, Wow. And I I say that in the hopes that people will be listening and will think about, oh, yes, I have some old old brochures that I used Mm -hmm. to use or own wine maps or maybe I have some bottles that I didn't really want to throw away and... Mm -hmm. 
Even if you don't want to part with stuff, we can just scan it and archive it because part of our project is to have an archive that will be here for historians in the future for the next 100 or 200 years mm. because that's we want that to document that. Yeah, that's fantastic. That's so fantastic that people are hearing that call. And, you know, the, the fact that they are aware that there is a wine history project to receive those things is really amazing. We're, oh, go ahead. And I just wanted to say we've been filming people instead of doing the oral interviews and archiving yeah. them because I think film is really what our generation and future generations are going to want to look at. So it's really thrilling to look on the website and see some of the films. And we're, we're just going to be making more and more and more now that the pandemic is ending. Let's take a quick detour here to talk about another consumed sponsor. Slow Food Co-op's mission is to empower health and well-being in the community by providing quality groceries, local produce, and exceptional customer service. Slow Food Co-op sources from local producers, ensuring they offer their shoppers great food and household staples. Slow Food Co-op is your friendly neighborhood grocer, maintaining non-GMO standards and a variety of organic selections. You can find Slow's only community-owned grocery store on their website at slowfood.coop and visit the Slow Food Co-op in-store at 2494 Victoria Avenue in San Luis Obispo, California. Talk to me about the choice to go with film and which projects you've done. We've made, our first film was really on the Ducey family. Um, and it's called 91 Harvest because I, I wanted to focus on growers. I feel like they're very much overlooked and most people don't know their names. And this family has uh, been so important in the history of our county. And it's also been uh, the land that they have, which is on both the east and the west side of Highway California Highway 101. We pass their vineyards, whether we're even thinking about it or not. Uh, all Every time we go to Paso Robles or further north, and I wanted people to say... That's an old vine Zinfandel growing right there. Look at it changing over the year as I drive through. And I wanted them to see that little home that's right in the middle of the Benito Ducey Vineyard. And I wanted them to know who lived there and, and the changes. If it, They did something in 1967 that was remarkable. In 1967, a man uh, from Ridge Winery came and knocked on the door, David Benyon, and um, Benito and his mother were there. It was Sunday. She was making lunch, and she invited him in, and uh, they had polenta and stew, and over a handshake, they sold their own old vine um, harvest to him and guaranteed it would be exclusively his, so he approximately 95%. And the other 5% Benito has saved for the home winemaking public mm -hmm. that he very much supported. So it was just, it went from a moment of, our Zinfandel wine had always been sold in a jug yeah. to now it's going to be sold in an elegant bottle. It's going to be entered in competitions. The Ducey Vineyard will be highlighted on the bottle. Mm. And it changed everything. I mean, all of a sudden, these grapes were grown in San Luis Obispo County. This is remarkable. Mm. So other people, of course, started coming here. And by the early 70s, Napa was saying to people, let's do commercial vineyards in Shandon or Creston or uh, Estrella River Valley. And let's um, buy those grapes. We need those grapes in Napa. There's a demand. Yeah. And so that really put us on the map. But it put the growers on the map and not, not so much the winemakers. They yes. came later. Yes, which people do not realize yes. now, Many, myself included. I always have to remind myself that it started with 
an agricultural endeavor yes. as a grower. Yeah. And our second film is about Tom Myers, the winemaker at Castoro Cellars, mm-hmm. because he's had uh, 42 harvests. He's worked at the very important uh, Estrella River Winery, which was established in the uh, 1973, and was an important growing place, but a very important launching pad for many of the winemakers that became famous in our county. Mm -hmm. And Tom was the winemaker. He was the first graduate from UC Davis to become a winemaker here. Mm -hmm. And he has been a mentor to so many people. He's just a remarkable person. And then the film that we just put up is a roundtable discussion with Archie McLaren, Mm -hmm. uh, Jim Clendenin, of Albon Clement, and um, the third person is Brian Talley of Talley Vineyards. Fantastic. So it's it's wonderful. And so we have um, Bob Lindquist will be our next one that will be coming up. Uh, he's very important for originally growing Syrah and making Syrah and uh, his biodynamic farming uh, in the Edna Valley and Royal Grande area. And I, I'm just, so we have many of these that we've filmed. And um, I'm just going to start working with the uh, Rigetti family because mm-hmm. we're doing a whole series on historic land. We just published an article on the old Kentucky ranch where mm-hmm. the Thatcher winery now oh, is. Yes, located. it's such a beautiful spot. Yes, and it's fascinating history. And then we'll do that with Rigetti Ranch because it's where the, one of the f- most important experimental vineyards was put uh, on the land. And we're very excited about that. Uh, that started in 1968 and was... The result of that harvest, wine was made at UC Davis, and mm. they said, yes, these grapes that you have in this experimental vineyard are important, and they should be grown in the Edna Valley. And that's part of the research you know, that brought the Goss family and the Nevin family there. So it's bringing all these, tying all these strings together, you know, tying the stories together. That's the part I just, I just love. Yeah, yeah. Tell, tell me about some of the outliers like, um, I mean, I know there are certain folks who obviously roan with Tablas Creek and, um, you know, Pinot Noir and Chardonnay and Edna Valley, but there are some outlier varieties and styles. Um, Claiborne Churchill. Um, yeah. Tell me, tell us some of the ones that are really kind of off in their own niche. Well, I think Talbot's Creek is another really important shaper of history because mm-hmm. Bob Haas, um, who had been um, in the wine business, his family had traditionally been in the wine business, importing wines from France, established relationships and became a major importer himself. But he established relationships in France. So the, a partnership with the Perrin family was paramount to the success of finding the land on Adelaide Road and also establishing a place where the Rhone varieties could be grown. Yeah. But much more than that, it was to bring the, the vines from and the cuttings from the Perrin family, mm-hmm. this very experienced family, through our agricultural process of bringing vines into our country. And then to, to do that and to plant them on the Adelaide Road in that vineyard, and then to make cuttings available to others. Yeah. It's just an amazing history. So it was the concept, it was the bringing of the vines, which was a long process. Sometimes it took three to seven years to get a vine from France into the ground yeah. uh, in, our, in, in the Adelaide region where they are located. And then I think Bob's ability to 
to market. He had wonderful connections, and he also made the tasting room such an important destination mm -hmm. for people to come and taste those wines. And he was so generous in sharing um, his knowledge and the wines you know, with other people. And so you see a wonderful, I mean, I think the number of, of Rhone uh, varieties grown here and the number of wineries and mm -hmm. wine growers is, I think, the most of almost any county in California, if I'm correct. I, I know wow. that, that the um, Jason Haas, his son, has carried on, of course, uh, in the same tradition and, and is a wonderful writer. And so he, he is. He's wonderful. His blog, I, I think, is it's just remarkable. My husband plays ultimate frisbee with him. <laughs> I well, know him more through that than I do through wine, which is funny. <laughs> well, he's 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 again, fantastic and has that same generous heart of sharing yeah. information continually, mm -hmm. and and that changed things tremendously in Paso Robles. You know, it wasn't just Cabernet, it wasn't just Chardonnay, right? And so that's very important. Yeah. Um, I think Gary and Bob Lindquist and John Albin bringing Syrah yes to our county and. Um, all three of them are really different people mm. and have different uh, ways of looking at it and bringing contributions. But the three of them are just like, I don't think they see themselves as a trio, but in my mind, in terms yeah. of connecting history, they are a very influential mm -hmm. trio that changed um, California. Yeah. It's not just Slow County, but California. Right. So um, those are the... Two, I, those are the most important outliers at the moment. It remains... Oh, the Claiborne and Churchill, though, they have a great story because... You know, it was a love story, and they yes. fell in love, and then they went hiking together. Um, mm -hmm. They went into the Alsace area. They fell in love with all the wineries, the wines. They left their careers as professors. Yeah, you they're know, they're such and, academics. And they came, you know, to the Edna Valley. And he was—he started as a cellar rat, a man who was already a professor who had received. Uh, a lot of academic acclaim. He was head of his department. Uh, you know, it, it's a very romantic story. But what I love is their focus on bringing Riesling. I agree. Oh, my gosh. It's just wonderful. And they bought the Riesling. Originally, it was grown by the Niven family. Yeah. And then there wasn't much demand. So the Nivens um, grafted over to other variety. But and Clay had to buy his grapes from Monterey, but now he's planted at his own estate vineyard, and it's so exciting. I mean, and Elizabeth, their daughter, is, you know, the next generation, you know, who will continue the tradition. So, yeah. yes, wonderful wines, wonderful Pinots also. Mm -hmm. that, yes, that right. Another outlier I can think of is um, Windward oh, with Mark Pinot Goldberg. in Paso, which is always... A surprise, I think, to a lot of people because Paso just, it's so hot. It's so, and it's so, it swings so much. And Pinot is known as a very finicky grape and often really prefers cooler weather, but he has managed to be there for a long time. Yes, Mark Goldberg is remarkable. And he, um, in interviewing him, I have him at the legend on the website, he's talked about the great influence of Stanley Hoffman yeah. um, growing Pinot in the Adelaide region. So it, it was, you know, Stanley was really the first to grow it uh, in the North County. And so Mark was very much inspired by that. And he has a collection of some of the HMR wines, yeah. which I'm very excited about. But I think his approach um, of, he uses the French influence and mm -hmm. he, everything from the way it's planted, the, the way it's harvested, the way he makes his wines. Um, it's, it's wonderful. Yeah. Yeah, it is. Well, so as far as you are, um, as far as Libby goes, I mean, 
you say you grew up in Southern California. What was it like for you? Did you have parents who were interested in either, you know, wine, food, or was it history? What, what brought you to this point? Well, my parents both uh, were definitely would be called foodies in today's world. Uh, yes, they were both really good chefs. They loved good food and they loved good wine. And, they, you know, had a European background, so mm. that was a natural. Where's your family from? Um, one part is from England. Okay. Other part is um, German. Mm-hmm. So uh, they emigrated to Canada um, during World War II and, um, and ultimately ended up in the United States. Mm-hmm. So uh, in the late 40s. So it was very exciting for me to come to California. We lived in um, Glendora, California, mm-hmm. which was a small town at the time. And my, my dad um, actually became a civil engineer and, and laid out a lot of the smaller towns in that area. So we were traveling all around with him on the weekends. He was, we were naming streets and he would always talk about, now you've got to study this area because we're now we're going to Anaheim and there's a whole history here. Now yeah. we're going wherever it was. So we got very hooked into history, I think, probably under his tutelage. Not that he knew the history, but he gave us kids something to do anyway. Yeah. So it was that. And then I, I just love California. Yeah, you know, same. I traveled mm. all over it and hiked it and I just love it. Why do we love it so much? I think there's so much diversity. I mean, diverse. we, you and me. Why the, the, do we? I think it's, there's a lot of diversity. Yeah. I mean, there's always something to explore, no matter what little town you're in. There's mm-hmm. something interesting. And then it's the ocean. Just like our wines yeah. are fabulous because of the Pacific influence. But don't you think that influences us, too? Oh, for sure. Just, I think I don't realize how much it influences me. I grew up in this county. And um, I actually went to Shell Beach Elementary School. You did? I did. Um, lived in Napomo, and it was a magnet school at the time. So I was bused, I don't know, what, 30 minutes each way every day. And um, Shell Beach, I remember we would have, you know, a visitor. Maybe it was like the D.A.R.E. program and, and police officers coming and, and um, you know, telling us about their jobs. And every time we had a visitor, they would say, wow, kids, what's it like to have this view of the ocean? And all of us, we were like, what are you talking about? Oh, that? Yeah, no. And we don't even notice it. We always went to the tide pools for our, you know, simple, easy field trips. And we just had no idea. So that influence um, is massive. And if you are used to it, you don't realize what a miracle it is to round the bend from San Luis Obispo into Shell and see the ocean. Yes. It's a miracle. For, and for people who have never seen it before, they slow down. They cause a bunch of traffic in that <laughs> corner. Um, but that's when it reminds me, oh, right. This is, it's like paradise between Point San Luis and Point Sal. It's just this massive curve with you know, glittering ocean in it. It's just beautiful. And I think, too, the whales, I mean, to be able to live, when you live in Los Angeles, you don't see the whales, but when you live here, you get to see the humpbacks, you get to see the greys, you get to see the dolphins playing. Mm -hmm. And the coastline varies so much from the Big Sur area, you know, then moving south down to the wide open beaches in Pismo. I think... It's just remarkable. I mean, I can every day I could just hike, you know, yeah. another 10 miles on the coast, and that would take my lifetime, I think. Yes, oh, I think it would. Yeah, and even just San Luis Obispo County, the variety. Yes. You know, there's one of the few remaining stands of Monterey Pines in California is in Cambria. And so you've got this 
incredible pine forest. And it feels almost like a little English hamlet or, you know, something in New England. And you just hop over on the 46, Highway 46, and you are in Paso where it's dry and hot and oak trees everywhere. Mm-hmm. Um, it just is hugely different. And then you take it to pa- Pozo and then you take it to Arroyo Grande. It's so vastly different everywhere. It is, and that's one of the stories I want to tell in the next book, because there are grapes growing in all of these places, and they're all different, and who had the idea to plant this here? And that's part of the fun. In fact, I have to tell you, in Shell Beach, Mm -hmm. when you were probably uh, in elementary school, there was an Italian named Dave Caperone who was uh, making wine in his basement, and he actually has a winery and beautiful vineyards up uh, on San Marcos Road, almost on the way to Lake Nascimento. But he was the first one to figure out that the three major uh, varieties of of Italian grapes Mm -hmm. could be grown in our county because people had said, oh, no, you can't grow Nebbiolo here. You can't grow Sangiovese here. And he he just persisted. He was actually working for Caltrans at at the time, I think, and so he could kind of go around and look at all the vineyards while he was working and talk to people who had vineyards in different places. And there he was in Shell Beach working in his basement. <laughs> I had no idea he was in Shell Beach. That's yes. so interesting. I'm actually slated to write a story about him, and I'm just now remembering my deadline and how, how behind I am. Oh, he's wonderful. Check our website because okay. we have a lot of information on him. Um, I did his legend, and he's in the book. Yeah. Uh, I, I really admire what he has done and his wines are so inexpensive and he also was a man who figured out how to market his wines very early he yeah. had a connection with trader joe's that changed his life yeah that and will do it for sure and he is an outlier with the italian varieties that's yes he is. absolutely right yeah um since you have such a great perspective, we were talking before we started recording that so much of what you did in terms of research and and putting pen to paper was during the pandemic and lockdown. Um, you said that you have a, a clearer perspective on the big narrative because everybody was in lockdown. Talk about that a little bit. Yes, I I think one of the great advantages of the pandemic, if you had to list one or two, is that it it created a lot more space for those of us who write, who do research, um, who probably paint, um, any creative endeavor, and that may be cooking as well. it gave me a time to and space not to be interrupted, as our lives are always so interrupted with things, to really think and think and think. And some days I sat all day just thinking about all the knowledge that I had. Mm-hmm. And I started to see the important trends. For example, the importance of the Italians and the impact on our culture. And nobody had really ever talked about that. I, I began to see the continuity of the generations. I began to see how they um, fought off prohibition. They pretended it didn't exist and they kept our wine industry both grape growing and winemaking alive Mm -hmm. they were able to actually be the biggest producers of of the first wines that were sold in our county even if they were i mean in our state even though they weren't produced in our county and the wines were produced but not the labels i so that was one part but there was a, a deeper uh connection I realized that California, which we probably also love because it's so different from every other place in the United States, Mm -hmm. I realized that the impact of the original Spanish heritage was much greater than I ever realized before. 
all of us kids who grew up in California took mission history and yeah. we all had our own mission. We had to research and all of that. Yeah. But that's not the, the important story. I mean, that's just the beginning of the story. Because the Spanish culture brought us viticulture. They brought us agriculture. Mm -hmm. They brought cattle ranching. These padres who came here had a, a tremendous business acumen. They were the ones who first got all of the grains growing and the cattle and the sheep, and then they planted the vineyards, and then they made wine, and then they sold it to all kinds of people. We had the most robust economic period from about 1800 to around eight, 1830s. Um, they created a business model in a sense that's still here. And they taught us how to space the plants in the vineyards. They taught us how to crush grapes. And that has been passed out generation to generation, and we're still doing some things exactly as they did them. Mm. We may not have liked Mission Wine if we tasted it today, but, you know, some of them didn't either. So they started making some very special brandies, and they started, they figured out how to make a big profit in what they did. When um, Mexico conquered California, they brought a different tradition. It was much more focused on the rancho and the cattle, and they, they dismantled all of the mission system. Mm. And so that was a dramatic change for us. Um, they brought the cattle industry to the fore. Uh, they certainly brought incredible music that we yeah. still enjoy every day. Um, and then when California came, California, uh, the U.S. never really had a chance to influence California because of the gold rush. We had over 300,000 people who came in the first three to four years, and they came from all over the world. So it didn't just change California, it changed the whole world. Yeah. And so those perspectives, the people who came, the people who had to survive when they didn't find gold in the hills, <laughs> the French, particularly, who were so discriminated against that they were run out of the gold fields and killed and mm. laws were passed against them. So they came our way. They came down. They settled in our county. They settled in Santa Barbara County, all the way through Southern California. Mm. You know, these are things I, I would have known, but I wouldn't have realized how deeply they impacted the history we have today. Yeah. yeah, it goes to show that small decisions and small things can have a really big trajectory and become, you know, the personality of a place or the economy of a place. Uh, because you have this perspective on history, if I were to ask, you know... Use your imagination. What is next? What do you think will come next, most logically, for our county? You know, it's a really good question, Jamie, and I don't think I've thought enough about it to give the best answer, but I could give you a few answers. I do believe that what John Albin opened my eyes to about this being a grape-growing place for the next hundreds and hundreds of years. I believe that to be true. Mm -hmm. I, I know that climate change is affecting a lot of our state, and it certainly has its impacts here too, but I don't think as much. I think we are blessed to have the Pacific Ocean uh, and all of its impact in terms of rolling fogs and breezes that cool our grapes and keep our climate somewhat in check. Um, as far as grape growing is concerned, I, I really feel that the Templeton uh, gap and the areas in the Edna Valley, um, those areas will continue to shine. And so that's, that's important. I think that we are slow to change. So I do think that the smaller winery, the idea of families uh, passing things down, I think those are really important uh, influences. I don't think that's going to change soon. Mm. 
I think we will probably have more, many more tourists than we've had in the past. Yeah. I think that uh, as we're rising in fame, I mm-hmm. think that will happen. I don't know if it'll really change us that much. I think we're the kind of place people come to for a couple of days as opposed to a month. Yeah. Uh, so those are the three things I, I would say. Yeah, that's a good answer. Well, I ask everyone uh, at the end of an episode... If you knew that today was your last day and you wanted to celebrate a life well lived, what would you eat and who would you eat it with? I would... Oh, and sorry, what would you drink? What am I thinking? What would you drink? <laughs> well, of course I'd drink Pinot Noir because that's always been one of my favorites. I love all many, many varieties of royals, but I love Pinot Noir. What would I eat? Well, it would have to be cheese because <laughs> uh, and chocolate. Yeah. I, I love chocolate, particularly French chocolate, and it pairs very well with Pinot. Mm. I would have to do kind of a, a French cheese, a kind of a light creamy cheese. Mm-hmm. And I'd have to have some tangerines, oh, <laughs> which would be good. Good answer. So I love that. That's a good final <laughs> meal. So we're going to get you some triple cream brie, and we're going to get you a baguette, <laughs> some French chocolate and tangerines, and some peanut. That's a luscious way to go. <laughs> Libby, it's so lovely to talk with you, and I wish you the best of luck on all of your, all your media endeavors with the Wine History Project. Thank you, and everyone, please, it's our project. Yeah. It's everyone who lives here should be part of it. Thank you. That wraps up another episode of Consumed. If you like what you heard and you think more people should hear it too, please review the podcast wherever you like to listen. Because remember that thing I said about being in the top 40 food and wine podcasts in the U.S.? Yeah, truly, thank you for listening. To learn more about Consumed, to see photos of my guests, and get links to their many projects and businesses, please visit letsgetconsumed.com. As always, special thanks to Chris Lambert, who edits this podcast, even though he's already outrageously busy with lots of other stuff. And thank you to everyone who lets me into their life for an hour each episode. Until next time, I'm Jamie Lewis. Listener.